Our text passage will be in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, as you find your place there, I'm going to make brief mention uh, uh, that as you see in your bulletins, if you've looked, um, there is going to be a new series starting in the summer. June 2nd, it will be called uh, The Timeless Ten. It is on the Ten Commandments. And uh, we've been in Luke a little bit over two years now, and uh, so it's about appropriate that we take a little break. Not that anybody's tired of it, I don't believe, but I think it will do us favor just to take a short break and then come back again to return to the themes that we've seen in Luke. So on June 2nd, uh, we will have an introduction to the Timeless Ten. That'll be the first week. And, and then subsequent weeks after that, for ten weeks, we'll be studying one of each of the commandments. I know Pastor Weiler is going to take a couple weeks of that. Uh, Nathan Buchanan is going to be doing one. Uh, uh, Jerry Robertson, I think, is going to take a week, though he may not know it yet. Um, and uh, we're going to uh, enjoy that summer series And then on the 12th week, our missionary family from Hungary, the Bjorks, is going to be here in August. So we're going to have a full update from them and their ministry, uh, basically a three-month pause, and we'll come back to Luke again. Also on another note, Charles Lichtenberger is going to start a new Bible life group, adult Bible life group, on Sunday mornings, 9.15 a.m. in the other building. That starts at 9.15, and uh, it's going to be on Hebrews next Sunday. So um, uh, that's going to be a great kickoff there. You, many of you have been in this classes before. And that's going to free up Pastor Weiler for the summer to concentrate on children's ministries and vacation Bible school and, and all those other good things. going to get him an opportunity to have time to preach. And uh, got a lot of good things uh, coming up So for the summer. Looking forward to all of that. As we look at uh, and return to Luke chapter 14... Uh, there's a troubling pattern that reemerges, and there's really no way of denying it. Uh, it's actually a frightening scene for many today. For once again, large crowds have assembled to follow Jesus, and once again, he is doing uh, what he has previously. He attempts to drive away superficial and uncommitted followers. Now, there is a good side to that as well. It's not that you're just driving away superficial, uncommitted followers. At the same time, you're drawing in the most committed. You're you're showing them at the same time what it takes to be a true disciple and thus enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I tell you what, Jesus would never last on the staff of many churches today. Many churches have bent over backwards to satisfy every shallow desire. The modern Americans have everything from your favorite flavor of tea to the, just the proper stage lighting. Today, nearly everything is orchestrated and, uh, and shaped, calculated to lure uh, the seeker. That, that that they call the seeker, the shallowest even of seekers, uh, including strides to ensure them that, that Jesus... Highest desire is just to make them as comfortable as possible. Boy, we've been through several chapters of Luke. I haven't seen anywhere a picture of that type of Jesus. Uh, Our study has actually shaken me, folks. Uh, Looking at it again this week, and and what's reiterated this week, has shaken me to the core of my spirit And our material since chapter 9, it's left me in ways troubled. Troubled. And although I've always theologically accepted, as we studied a few weeks ago, that the gate is narrow that leads to life. Yeah, easy to theologically accept that, that the gate is narrow that leads to life. Um, There's few who find it the realism of how heartbreaking that is. uh, begins to set in, how exceedingly narrow that door is. And and as we saw in our scripture reading earlier from Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the cost of remaining faithful to God in in virtually all biblical eras of the Bible, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, the cost has been enormous to remain faithful 
to Christ. It was true of the prophets. It was true of the, of the apostles, if you're familiar with the way that most of them perished. It was true of all believers. You think of Daniel in the lion's den and what he faced there, even Noah being ridiculed. Just think of the labor it would take Noah and whoever else he might have had to help there either employed. I don't know if he was a construction worker or what. We know he had sons. He might have been in the lumber trade before he ended up getting called by God to build that ark. Um, regardless, the work, the commitment, the ridicule that believers throughout all eras of the Bible have had to endure. And then, of course, think of the early Christians. The early Christians in Rome, many of whom uh, were burnt at the stake. Many of whom were torched by emperors uh, for their faith because they were unwilling to just worship whatever God was thrown before them. Our spiritual heritage, that is it. That is our spiritual heritage. And it puts very high demands upon Christ followers. Uh, so high that they are embraced as reasonable to only a small number of people. To everyone else, Jesus shows the door. As I read this passage, I challenge you to recognize uh, that as a pastor or staff member, Jesus saying such words as this, uh, he would never last long in a seeker-driven church today. Beginning in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is either uh, useless for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, if you've been with us over the last several months, you notice, you now notice, most of these statements that we're reading here, uh, these themes that we see in this passage, they are repeated in the Gospel of Luke. It's called being redundant. Luke wants you to see a pattern here. He wants you to notice this. Large crowds assemble to hear Jesus preach, and afterwards, he, he increases and amplifies the demands of following him, which results in most leaving, the largest percentage leaving. And I'm immensely grateful. Um, think about it this way. What kind of God? What kind of God and what kind of Christ, what kind of Messiah and Lord would he be who came to call sinners to repent and devote their lives to serving him as creator? as the God of the universe, sovereign creator, but then when they refused, turns to the crowd and says, you know, oh well, I gave it my best try. You know, you really don't get into this holiness thing, this righteousness thing, this changed life, this being born again. Uh, don't feel like carrying a cross and dying to self. Okay then, uh, what game would you like to play? Can you imagine that? What would you like to play for a game? You're now in charge, and, and though you will not follow me, though you won't give up your, your life for me, I'll adjust and make as few demands upon you 
as possible. And at the same time, I'll use all of my divine power to make your life as comfortable and prosperous as it can be. What kind of Christ would that be? What kind of God would that be that would cater in such a way? That would, in fact, be exactly the false Christ that is being offered to millions of Americans around the globe week after week, every single Sunday. A false Christ with no expectations of his followers, except that they have a good time. Have a good time and tithe, right? Have a good time and tithe. That's the one requirement. The one requirement of the Mosaic Law enforced in false churches today of this type who insist that if you can just bring yourself to obey the, this one uh, tenet of the Mosaic Law, give us money, a cool 10%, and then God is cool with whatever sinful arrangement or behavior you have in your life. If that is the arrangement, all they want is your money. If that is the arrangement. And that makes people think they can buy their way out of sin. That's what it suggests. I tithe. I make a showing at church now and then. And everything's going to remain good between me and Jesus. And people have been cultured. In our society, they've been cultured to think that through giving money, they are making an exchange by giving money to the church, they think they're making an exchange. So as to preserve their best life now, rather than lose their life in following Christ. It's one reason yeah, I cringe when I hear churches legalistically enforcing the law of the tithe on people today. Uh, some preachers, some will make it the supreme indicator of faith. Boy, if you got that one down, you're, 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 you've plateaued, right? Supreme indicator. Ensuring people that you know, God's going to multiply that back tenfold, maybe more, guaranteed, right? If you have enough faith. So that they can then, I guess, immerse themselves even into buying more stuff that they don't need. More materialism and covetousness that Jesus is trying to turn the crowds away from. That is a horrid corruption of the gospel, folks. A horrid corruption, and nothing like we see preached by Christ. First, this should be, this should be automatic, but it needs to be said, we as Christians never give as a motive to get. Tithing isn't a system to get rich. Some people, you know, hear it said, you know, tithing really works. What do you mean? What do you mean it really works? I understand people that use a, a pattern that, that they feel, but, but they say it works? So, you're, so your goal then is to get wealthy through this. Big problem there. Second, we aren't under the law, all right? Galatians has a big problem with that. Put anyone under any one segment of the law, uh, whether it be circumcision or whatever it is, you're severed from Christ. You can't be made righteous through keeping the law. And third, this is the most important and relevant to what we're talking about today, you can't buy grace. You can't buy forgiveness. You can't buy that. Um, you can't exchange anything that you have for grace. You can't manipulate God to overlook your sin. Christians give just as each has purposed in his or her own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Grace is free. Grace is free. By God's grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God not a result of works, not a result of tithing, not a result of keeping 
the law. Never a result of works so that no man may boast. We have to be very clear about forgiveness and grace. God bestows it according to His good pleasure and not in exchange for anything that we do. Grace is free. But it ain't cheap. It ain't cheap. Somebody said ain't ain't a word. That is in my title. It ain't cheap. Um, Once you've trusted in Christ, at that same time the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. It's a gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That changes your entire life, folks. You're born again. You're made alive to God. You are a new uh, creature. Uh, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Your life has changed. So once you, by God's Spirit, become a Christian, everything changes. Your desires become God's desires. Your patterns of habitual sin, they're interrupted. You aren't perfected yet, but your sin is interrupted. Your love for God is manifest through your love for God's people. You revere His name so that the blaspheming of the holy name of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, that hurts your ears now. That's painful. Acquiring material possessions has become subordinate to serving Him. Serving Him is first, and thus the accumulation of them becomes progressively insignificant over time. Been with us the last few weeks, right? Material possessions become increasingly less important over time in the Christian's life. And the company of God's redeemed, His church, His beloved that He died for, the people, they increasingly become the most important thing to you because the church is the most important thing to Christ. The church is the only thing, really, that He has going in this world. He came to build His church. He loves His church. He bled and died for the people called His church. These are all changes that are, uh, these and others that are wrought by the Holy Spirit, caused by the Holy Spirit living in you. So for us, or to us, excuse me, who believe, the demands given by Jesus in verses 25 to 35, honestly, they they don't sound that radical. To those of us who are believers born again, they're not that radical. But to someone who is considering giving their life to following Him, these become foundational. They've got to contemplate these. The, The grace that draws us to Jesus, Scripture says that if my... uh, Any whom my Father uh, calls will come. He will draw them, right? And those considering giving their life to Jesus, salvation is free, but it doesn't come cheaply. We recognize that. So Jesus announces these requirements in our passage to drive away the false believers. Those who aren't on board. The goats, the wolves, um, means only the chosen are going to remain. Only those who are being drawn will remain. And and as a church, we've covered each of these in detail already on previous weeks. So I'm going to approach them a little more general today, if that is all right. We've heard these before. Verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, hating's, hating one's parents would be a violation of the law. So hate, as we see it, it's not what Christ means here. Uh, the Greek term hate suggests having an aversion to something. An aversion against something. And it's often used in Scripture to provide uh, a way of comparison. One thing to another. In Matthew 10.37, for instance, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. Right? A parallel passage. It's a comparison. And if you want to follow Christ, 
And if there's going to be a forced choice, if you're going to be pushed in a corner, your highest loyalty must be to Christ. Uh, in our culture, our culture, where unbelieving parents, you know, they leave all the choices up to the kids. In the unbelieving culture, to be separated over something as trivial as religion seems, seems impossible. To be separated over something as trivial as that, that, that that's hard for un- unbelieving America to believe. What, you're going to divide family over something as trivial as religion? And other behaviors, risky behaviors, sexual behaviors, dropping out of school, smoking pot, a very bad idea. It, it, with these, it's very common for American parents to say, you know, you know, it's your life. You live it. That's more common than we realize. Let them screw it up seems to be the approach in our culture. And we live in a society where, where personal autonomy that is, that's the highest value. It's, it's right up there at the top. Personal autonomy, uh, even if it hurts others, I can do what I want to do. Don't tell me I can't do what I want to do. The Jewish family, it was not that way. It was not that way. You probably can't believe this, but in, in, in ancient Israel, indecent behavior brought shame upon a family. Shame. Cultural shame. And giving your life to following this man, Jesus Christ, who is becoming increasingly unpopular in many ways, in many circles. Jesus was viewed in some circles as a type of cult leader. He had been marked as having a demon by the religious elite of their day. There was a very good chance that following Jesus was going to put a wedge between you and your Jewish family, and then it would bring shame. It was a high cost to lose your clan in that day, to lose your family. Muslim countries understand this. Chinese and North Korean Christians experience this. Most Americans, we don't get it. We don't get it. Most of us... Most of us will not be pushed into making a choice between preserving a relationship with our parents and becoming a Christian. Most of us won't be pushed into that. If you say, you know, Mom, I've, I've just become a Christian, you know, she, she might reply, you know, honey, that's great. Your, your sister Amy, you know, she just became a Buddhist and she's dating Tiger Woods. You know, I, I think this is all just great for you girls. You know, that's the way these discussions go. You, you found religion? Oh, that, that's great. Lots of people find their religion today. Just don't get too serious about it, right? It isn't until you get to the nerve of the whole issue when you tell mom that your Buddhist sister Amy is going to go to hell if things don't change. That's when the problems are going to arise. It's the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the only way that brings trouble within a family. And if you're contemplating following Jesus today, your allegiance to him, it has to be higher than any other, even your own family. And hopefully, I pray, hopefully it won't. But if the cross causes you to be separated from your family, so be it. Jesus said, he who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Such a person cannot be his disciple. He does not take second place. The second condition of discipleship Jesus provides is given in verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, in America, this command runs into that barrier of autonomy. There are no autonomous Christians out there. And we discussed this at length back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus said, you must take up your cross daily. Daily. And you should recall at that time, I exposed how people are drawn 
to fabricate their own crosses, consistent with their own individual prerogatives and convenience. A cross that's shaped well and fits them nicely, fits their shoulders nicely, that's easy to carry. You know, I volunteer 20 hours a week, someone might say, at the SPCA. I care for homeless animals. Well, that's great. Or I'm leading a crusade. Going to get the legislators together and we're going to get a petition to ban plastic straws. You know, something really important. Or, Or whatever other cause that Jesus never talked about. Never talked about. That you throw your life into. Anything that you prioritize first in your mind that is not first in Christ's mind. The building of His church. And people will say, you know, well this is what I do. This, I, that's good what you do. But this over here, this is what I do. You fabricated a cross that's comfortable for you to bear. But you and I don't get to pick out our own cross. We don't get to choose our cross. No, the cross Jesus bore was for the love and for the redemption of his church, for the people of his church, for the souls, the one thing eternal besides the word of God in this world that's going to perish and be burned up along with the straws. Just being ridiculous to make a point. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's his passion, that's his his love, the souls of men. God, the word of God, and the souls of men are the only things that are eternal. This whole earth is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be recreated again. Christ was focused as he went to the cross. He suffered and died for one thing, his church. He loves his church. He's building the church. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, and even lose your life, it's for the same cause that he died for. Not a different one. Not one that's made up. His church. His church. 1 John 3.14 says this, By this we know that we have passed out of death into life because, because we love the brethren. That's his church. He who does not love, John writes, abides in death. He who does not love the brethren. So anyone who claims to love Jesus but but doesn't enjoy a passion to obey Scripture and assemble, to worship, and to edify the brethren, to love the brethren, to care for the brethren, to come together and worship with the brethren, anyone who says they love Jesus but don't love his church, that's, that's a liar. That's a liar. And if such person has no desire to take up their cross and serve the beloved of God, the redeemed of God, as Christ did, they cannot be his disciple. How do I know I'm a Christian? I'm here with you. That's not easy. You're here with me. Not any easier. Why are we here? We're very different. Different backgrounds. Different different things we take pleasure in. Different families, different histories, different origins. Why are all of we here? Because we love what Jesus loves. We love the people he died for. And we are together with them. Serving church, serving church, because a lot of you came to, to, to Christ young, I understand that. I, I came as an adult. Serving church in my unbeliever paradigm, that was crazy talk. Completely crazy talk. Why would I do that? Why would I go there? What do I have in common with them? As an unbeliever, the truth was nothing. Had nothing in common with the redeemed. I wouldn't have served as an unregenerate person. I wouldn't have borne a cross for his church. There's no way. Jesus, at the Last Supper, he washed the disciples' feet. You can find that in John chapter 21. 
And when doing so, uh, he was not instituting a third ordinance or, or ceremony uh, to, be, to be invoked, a religious type of ceremony. There, there are only two. It's, it's water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Water baptism is something you do once. The Lord's Supper is something that we do in memory to remember what Christ did for us, the, the bread and the cup. Um, and, and I'll be a little redundant here because Luke is. And, and besides that, likely some might not have been here last time we talked about this. In, in John 13, verse 12, when Jesus asked Peter, you know, do you know what I have done for you? You called me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, right? Today is not about dirty feet, by the way. As the teacher, Jesus assumed the the menial task, usually assigned to the lowest servant in the household at that time. Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples a willingness to be humble and to serve. Take the lowest rung on the ladder, uh, lowest spot in the household. For even Christ said he did not come to be served, but to serve. With sandals in that day and dirty roads and not much pavement, washing feet was, was exceedingly common. Exceedingly common. Multiple times a day if you went into the house, uh, you washed the dirt, the grime off of your feet. Especially when you were reclining at a table that was about that high. And your feet were up where everybody would see them. Um, So washing the feet at the Last Supper, that would have been um, a a role of a servant. Um, Perhaps today the lowest perceived role of serving would be something like cleaning bathrooms. Something like cleaning bathrooms. But Jesus wasn't establishing a ceremony. Uh, Once in a great while, someone will ask, you know, from particular traditions, they'll ask, you know, does your your church practice ceremonial foot washing? And I'll reply, no. No. And then they say sometimes, you know, we did that at our old church, and, you know, it really made us feel spiritual. Really made us feel spiritual. Tingly, even spiritual. That's great. That, that's good. However, Christian doctrine and practice is never validated by how tingly it makes us feel. But if you like, you can tell me how you feel once you grab a bottle of Mr. Clean and a toilet brush. How does that make you feel? Pretty humble. Pretty humble. Because essentially that is a modern equivalent, not the modern equivalent, but a modern equivalent to foot washing. That's almost a good introduction to find your ministry month. Did you bring that up in announcements? I was in the hall. Yes, and others. Find your ministry month to serve coming up starting next week. Cleaning will be coming up later, but there's going to be lots of roles to serve. Eventually we find in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, that washing of the saints' feet, it became a euphemism for hospitality and service. And it becomes crucial to recognize that, that Christ was not establishing foot washing as a religious ceremony to be rehearsed quarterly, yearly, or every so often. Why is that important? Hang with me here for a second. Because transforming foot washing into a ceremony that's done from time to time, it actually diminishes the practical lesson implied by Jesus. You follow me? If it was intended as a ceremony to be observed like communion, like every so often, as often as you will, then I can fulfill Christ's command to wash feet periodically without ever having to touch a bathroom. Follow me? And at the same time, I could feel very, very spiritual about myself because I'm taking part of a ceremony. Because cleaning bathrooms, mowing grass, serving in the nursery with screaming children, weed eating, helping with children's ministries, 
teaching Sunday school, all these different things, somehow that just doesn't seem as spiritual, does it? As a ceremony. But, in fact, serving is actually much more, much more spiritual than any ceremony. Beyond measure. And that's what Jesus was doing in washing feet. He was taking the role of a servant. So bearing your cross for the church, sacrificing your time, we'll be talking again through the month of May about these things. Sacrificing your time, contributing from your abilities, serving the brethren in whatever role is needed, service role, um, that's bearing a cross for the church. Fortunately, everyone is qualified to do the menial task that Jesus described. Feet washing, it didn't take a lot of skill. Not a lot of glory in it. Anybody can do it. So relatively few actually will. Instead, you know, what Pastor Weiler and I run into most often, uh, what we encounter really all the time, are people seeking a church where they can set up their own personal ministry. My own personal ministry, we can give it a snappy name, something I can carve out, um, that I can put on display for everybody to see, um, believing that their own personal ministry will validate them, rather than just serving. Just serving. But unless you are willing to pick up your cross and serve, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Bearing a cross of service is why many, perhaps most people, do not persevere in church. But while the grace you have received is free, it's not cheap. It costs. And most people, when making a profession of Christ, they don't count the cost. What's this going to cost to being a Christian first? And the typical gospel presentation is that faith's really all about you, and it will prosper you But when people discover that Christianity isn't actually all about you, but that actually it's all about Christ and everybody else he saved except you, that's when people quickly fall away. Um, I'll keep moving. Christ says in verse 28, verse 33, that you should count the cost of carrying your cross first. I don't think we need to over-engineer this interpretation. It's straightforward. It means what it says. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, "This uh, This man began to build and was not able to finish. You know, it's, it's amazing the number of people who profess faith in Christ, get baptized, tell mom and dad uh, what a great thing had happened. They put it up on Facebook for a while for everybody to see. But then within a short period afterward, a few months, a few years, whatever it may be, they fail to persevere. They disappear. And they're back sitting where they once were, wherever that may be, whether it's at, at a bar stool somewhere or, or wherever, wherever else they spent their time before. And when the topic of spirituality comes, their old buddies prod and they grin. Yeah, Bob, we remember when you got into that Jesus thing. How did that work out for you? Because Bob did not calculate the cost of following Jesus, so Bob becomes the Bob of their joke. Um, could be any number of things. Verse 31, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. I wouldn't read more into these illustrations than is here. They're simple illustrations. Uh, you don't need to, to identify symbolism for every character and everything. That's not helpful. What they both suggest is not indefinitely putting off a decision to follow Christ. Don't go that direction. What they do is they ask us to make a profession of Christ with a proper assessment. Never are we going to ask anyone, you know, go home, think about this for a few months. That's not what it's saying here. 
do I, what we want to know is, does a person understand what this entails, following Jesus? Because if you miscalculate the cost, you might fi- uh, find yourself later disillusioned as if you signed up for something that you didn't intend. You got into something and you didn't, you get reading scripture and you're like, I didn't know. I, I didn't know this. And people can become disillusioned and fall away because they weren't given a, bit, a good picture beforehand. And again, the intent is not to delay a decision indefinitely to gather more information or to put a study together, but to go in knowing what following Jesus is going to cost. That's the point. So Jesus, Jesus makes the calculation exceedingly simple here. It's going to cost everything. Everything. Verse 33, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. This does, in fact, literally say in the Greek, to part ways with all possessions entirely. So you need to join a monastery. Become a monk or a nun in order to be his disciple. Or is it in order to become a special category of disciple, you do these things? No, neither. Surprisingly, some have been led into making an uninformed decision to join a convent or something like that uh, by people of influence who distorted this verse, um, which is, by the way, the opposite of what it's actually saying. We're supposed to go in ahead of time knowing. Even cults have been known to use this particular verse, pull it out of context, to trick people into reassigning uh, their assets of ownership. Their ownership of assets, excuse me. Here's the thing. Somebody still owns it, right? It's not like you can make your possessions disappear or, or as if giving away or selling all of your possessions is actually what Jesus meant. And, and if you then sold or, or if you even gave them to somebody else, you would then be preventing that person from becoming Jesus' disciples. Think of what you're doing to them if that's the interpretation. Boy, don't sell your car to your neighbor. You're just preventing him from becoming Jesus' disciple if that were the intention. Fortunately, that's not the intention. So what are we going to do with this? I think, it's, I think it's simple, folks. I think it's fairly simple. As recently as chapter 12... Jesus says, your life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Sell your possessions and give to charity, and you will have treasure in heaven. And we determined at that time, that passage did not say sell all of your possessions, but correctly taught us to sell some in order to simplify our lives, minimize possessions, and have the ability to be more generous. Right? You remember that? There, it actually did say sell. But after the resurrection, Peter still owned his fishing boat. Much later, Philemon and other Christians were commended for hosting churches in their homes. So they still owned their homes. It seems that the Apostle Paul built tents. Well, for who? You couldn't give them to anyone because then they'd have possessions and they couldn't be Jesus' disciple. We live in a world of possessions. That's not what this means. Nobody in their right mind believes that Nathan should, should get rid of his store or that he was in sin for selling chicken sandwiches. The chicken sandwiches are actually very delicious. Private property rights are preserved cover to cover in Scripture. Uh, In fact, with a proper reading of of Acts chapter 4, even even when there was sharing uh, of things in common, Scripture shows Christians still owned their own homes. Paul exhorted people to work hard with their hands and eat their own bread, and then have some left over to share someone who can't work. Our sinful nature gravitates to laziness. Anybody admit that here? Am I, am I the only one? 
Our sinful nature gravitates to laziness, neglect, slothfulness. So socialism, which, which is an unbiblical ideology, completely unbiblical, it's disastrous to a culture because it removes the biblical incentive to work and to produce. It's disastrous. Besides, Scripture says that sharing as a social device is to be voluntary in the Spirit, not under compulsion. If I don't own anything, how can I willingly give anything? So it seems that verse 33, that in verse 33, the key is the language of giving up all possessions. You'll be very thankful to know that if Luke implied selling all of your possessions, he would have used the same words of Jesus that Jesus used in his command to sell and give away in chapter 12, where Jesus didn't say all. He said sell possessions and give to the poor. Simplify. Jesus does not here use the same language telling us to sell. He says give up. Give up. Part ways with. The Greek word implies to abandon, to cut ties with, to emotionally cut ties, to abandon all possessions. The disciple of Christ gives very little weight to possessions. That would, in fact, be in direct contrast to those we saw last week in verse 18, who would not part with their land or their oxen or their family, to dine in the kingdom. The adage is true for the Christian. You can have possessions, but your possessions can't have you. How do you tell the difference? Easy. Easy. Your reaction to that statement. If you breathed a sigh of relief, whew, great, this is the exemption that I needed to keep my Jay Leno-like car collection. That's an F. You failed. If it was just a release, well, I get to keep everything I have. That's an F. If your response is, you know, great, keeping up with my girlfriends or guy friends with the latest iPhone every six months, it's just killing me. I need some relief. That's about a C. You're doing better there. You're seeing the weight that keeping up possessions uh, brings upon your shoulders. If your response is, you know, I... I've already gotten rid of most of my superfluous, surpoof, forget it, unprofitable <laughs> possessions. Unprofitable possessions, those that do not profit me for life or career. And I just can't wait to see Jesus so he can take away the rest and give me treasure in heaven. That's an A, folks. That's the attitude we as Christians need to have. I'm, gonna, I'm going to use and enjoy what God has. I'm thankful for it. We can give thanks for food and covering and blessings that God provides us every day. But we need to realize passing through this world really kind of stinks. Keeping everything up. Keeping the rust off stuff. Keeping the guns clean. Anybody tired of cleaning guns yet from yesterday? Our day at the range? Mine are still sitting. I haven't cleaned nothing yet. Oh, just keeping everything up. For the Christian, materialism stinks. It does. I'm thankful for what I have, but I honestly, I can't wait till we just part with it all. Just let it go. I, I don't see how prosperity preachers can insist week after week that Jesus actually wants us to have more of it. Oofta. That's what we say in North Dakota. Oofta. My impression is that Jesus' command in verse 33 is in response to the attitude seen in verse 18. Those who made excuses. Loved the stuff they had. I got land to go see. I've got oxen to go test drive. I got a new wife that won't let me go. All the, all the excuses they made. Now, that interpretation isn't the best grammatically because it's quite a ways back from verse 33 to verse 18. There's quite a distance there. Um, but it does seem to be a good interpretation thematically about what Luke has been teaching us. Um, because after completing 14 chapters, we're forced to acknowledge that immersing ourselves in the riches of the world, um, that's not following Jesus. It's not. 
It's not. The prosperity gospel offers a false Jesus to false Christians who, like the Pharisees in verse 18, refuse to emotionally part with their possessions so that they can enter the kingdom of heaven. One minute. Being a disciple of Christ, it involves a loyalty to him greater than all, even your own family. Bearing your cross means loving his church, loving them all, serving them all, loving them even more than your own life, just like Jesus did, because he died for them. And being a true Christian requires the admission that following Christ will eventually cost us everything. Cost us everything. And we follow, we follow along, we go more in a week, we go more than a few weeks. Christians last more than a few years. Um, a disciple's faithfulness lasts all the way till the end, just like salt. Do you know that genuine salt, pure salt, it never loses its taste? Never. Never. It lasts all the way to the end. Um, a disciple's faithfulness to Christ, it never loses its taste either. It perseveres all the way to the end of the perseverance of the saints. And do you know the genuine salt never loses its flavor? It, it can only change form. Christians are the salt of the world, and we last. We last until the end. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As we close, true salt changes forms, but it never loses taste. It's a seasoning that penetrates and it preserves. But that isn't the only type of salt. There was another salt. It was mined in beds near the Dead Sea. It was not pure salt. It was contaminated salt. And it was contaminated with inert materials, and especially gypsum, which is white like salt. Anybody ever tasted gypsum, by the way? Sheetrock. Don't ask me how I know that. And if that salt from the Dead Sea was not processed correctly and the impurities were not purged to save money, the imp- get it? The impurities were not purged? Follow the theme? And if it was sold by an unscrupulous dealer, when you got it home, it didn't have flavor. It didn't have the flavor. It could not preserve meat. It was really useless. And if a person wasn't careful, it looked the same. It looked just like real salt. It was like taking home a bad avocado. You don't know until you get open. But when they went to use it, they would find it wasn't actually salty. And they taste it and they say, this isn't salt. This is gypsum. And it was found by the owner to be useless not fit even as a fertilizer or in the manure pile, so it was thrown out into the road and trampled upon because when it was tasted, they discovered it wasn't really salt. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray.